Everyday working class black folks in Ferguson and St. Louis, especially young people, some of them leaving their service industry jobs and hitting the protest lines. And they really taught us that perhaps victory could be realized in our lifetime. And the idea that black resistance as a strategy um, and black uprising as a strategy still um, is unique in its ability to transform conditions. They reminded us of that when we needed to be reminded of that, I think. And I owe a debt of gratitude to them, and I think we all do. And we're now seven years after that moment, that uprising in Ferguson. And the movement for Black Lives is now the largest social movement in U.S. history. Hey, folks. This is Stephen Pitts, host of Black Work Talk and organize the Upgrade podcast. Here we take a look at efforts around the country to build the collective power of Black workers. Today's guest is Maurice Mitchell. Maurice is the national director of the Working Families Party. I have been impressed with the Working Families Party since its inception, as they have done a good job of navigating the complicated waters of combining left political perspectives with building bases among working-class people and maintaining effectiveness in the electoral arena. Maurice became national director about two years ago, and I was excited to get his take on the current political situation and the efforts of the party to achieve governing power. We had a wide-ranging conversation, moving from issues of policing to the need for political education and building durable progressive movements to the importance of bringing a class analysis to an understanding of racial oppression. Let's go enjoy the show. But I do want to remind you that we need your support. Here at Black Work Talk, we are committed to developing a vibrant conversation, bringing you the key voices building Black worker power in the workplace and in the neighborhood. Bringing you the best guests and the most timely discussions takes resources. We depend upon people power to grow. So please go to Patreon to make a financial contribution, small or large, and become a part of our community to support the work we do here at Black Work Talk. And Black Work Talk comes to you via Organizing Upgrade, an online space created to strengthen social movements. If you appreciate Black Work Talk, check out Organizing Upgrade's weekly live show, Frontline Dispatches. The show spotlights organizers and activists at ground zero of the fights for racial justice and economic justice. Like Black Work Talk, it gives the mic to people with worlds of insight who you might not hear otherwise. You can catch it on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 4 p.m. Pacific, or anytime on Organized Upgrade's Facebook page. See, Maurice, man, thanks for coming on. It's good to be here. How you been doing? I've been doing well, relatively considering um, all the goings-ons in the world, the intersecting crises we're all experiencing. I've yeah, been doing yeah. relatively well, and... You know, I'm just trying to be really zen, just focus on the things I, I have control over and accept that um, most most of the variables I don't have control over. And that's okay. That is the human condition. And that's all right. So I've just been kind of sitting in that. That's really important, man. Cause a lot of times, I mean, the, the stuff we can't control is important, obviously. Mm-hmm. But if you can't control it, you got to kind of have a proper response given those things. That's correct. And a lot of times what happens if we like a better term, freak out over the stuff we can't control. What we can't control, we do poorly. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea of simply kind of staying and knowing what you can do, knowing how far to push the envelope is super, super important. Um, that's particularly important now, I think, around the whole police stuff, man. It's just like, um, you turn around, man, to kill somebody, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's hard to hold that. It's mm-hmm. hard to. And, and my way of adapting has been largely to not check in right away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I may see the headline kind of dump my head basically. Then I come up, come up and I watch the video and say, damn. Yeah. You know, um, but how do you see the, the current movement around police accountability? How, what's, your, what's your thoughts about what's going on in the area, man? Well, when I look at the movement, I overall feel very, very proud. Mm-hmm. Um, I 
was born in the late, the tail end of the 70s. Um, I was old enough to remember and for my dad to reiterate the horrors of the, the move bombing of, I remember Amadou Diallo. I remember many of growing up, many of these civil rights abuses against black folks. And it definitely shaped my consciousness. Um, when I was in university, Howard University, Prince Jones, one of our classmates was killed by the police and that that politicized so many of us. Um, Trayvon, his case really hit a lot of us, black folks and other folks around the country. When Michael Brown was murdered, um, there's a longer story, but the short story is I reached out to the Organization for Black Struggle in St. Louis and um, ended up leaving my my home and the work that I was doing in New York and my friends and family and my apartment and um, ended up living in the attic of a activist in St. Louis and embedding with the Organization for Black Struggle to support the work that they were doing because I was so inspired by the Ferguson uprising and all those everyday working class Black folks in Ferguson and St. Louis, especially young people, some of them leaving their service industry jobs and hitting the protest lines. And they really taught us that perhaps victory could be realized in our lifetime. And the idea that Black resistance as a strategy um, and Black uprising as a strategy still um, is unique in its ability to transform conditions. They reminded us of that when we needed to be reminded of that, I think. And I owe a debt of gratitude to them. And I think we all do. And we're now seven years after that moment, that uprising in Ferguson. And the movement for Black Lives is now the largest social movement in US history. Um, an indicator of the impact and the influence and the reach uh, So all of the corporate entities that rushed out um, BLM statements, you know, from SoulCycle to it. And to me, why that's an important indicator is that these corporations and capitalism do not care about, about Black people, but it demonstrates how much a cultural shift has taken place, whereas they felt it was necessary to respond to Black death um, and to be on the right side of history. Um, and um, when you consider just over the past year, the shifts on so many sites of struggle from the cultural to the corporate, to the political, to the electoral, the fact that today in St. Louis, seven years after the murder of Michael Brown, Cori Bush is in Congress and she was on the protest lines. Deshora Jones is mayor and we're talking now and she hasn't even completed two weeks. She closed the workhouse. She closed this horrible jail. Um, she's diverted resources from jails to the community. She's made decisions that will decrease the footprint of the police. Uh, so, you know, like a lot of issues that are transformative, they seem impossible until they seem inevitable. And the shift from going from that cognitive shift or that cultural shift from going from impossible to inevitable could happen very rapidly. And I think we're in the midst of that as it relates to how we understand policing and investment. Uh, I think it's only a matter of time before it becomes inevitable that in municipalities, citizens are scrutinizing the police budget and are demanding more resources directly to their communities. And that will mean a reversal of the past 40 years of neoliberalism, which has been a deep defunding of people and communities and a massive um, redistribution of those resources to police, jails, uh, prisons, and the whole system of, of surveillance and control. And there's a relationship. If you defund education and healthcare 
and the commons and you you essentially tear asunder the threads of community you will create the conditions that will drive intercommunity violence and therefore you will decide that more jails prisons surveillance and police in order to surveil people is required if you disinvest from the the economy then people will have to shift from being being able to make their basic needs from the formal economy and they'll shift to the informal economy and creating those informal markets creates quote unquote crime that then requires surveillance and jail and prisons in order to um for the state to essentially to um to control and monitor those markets God, you said so much, Maurice. We could have like a, a, the Mo and Stephen show for, for hours and this stuff, man. Um, I thought a lot of things that you're talking. Let me kind of put them out there so I don't forget about them and see how far we go and flow and those yeah. sort of things. Let's do it. What I thought was important to make note of the, the distinction between short-term and long-term accountability. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people said after, after the road to Minneapolis how this wasn't justice, this was accountability. Yeah. But in my mind, I would call that short-term accountability. Mm-hmm. This cat who killed George Floyd going to jail. Boom. Yeah, yeah. Um, but knowing they killed a brother in Brooklyn Center while the trial was going on, yeah. I, I always want to make sure we don't forget about the long, the long game. That's right. And and, and long term accountability is, is different from short term accountability. That's right. And 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 having one out of ten in jail means still you got a lot of folk being killed. So that's kind of one thing I thought about. You're you're talking. Mm-hmm. I was also thinking about. You had mentioned the, the the victories in St. Louis after Ferguson. That's right. It's so super important to claim those victories and mark them. Because a lot of times in heat of battle, our rhetoric evokes a world that we can't win anytime soon. That's right. And what happens then when we forget that it's rhetoric and and, and we roll because of the of the passions and so forth, all of a sudden, if a Cory Bush is elected, what's it mean? In a big thing, that kind of thing, right? Absolutely right. And so, so the whole notion of claiming riches is so super important. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the last thing I'd like to get your thoughts on this. Um, yeah. yeah. The, um, it, it seems to me that the term investment, and I, I'm an economist by training, so I have a kind of a way, I'll call it a weird way to look in the world, you know? Um, but to me, what's happened around jobs and housing, schools, and so forth isn't exactly disinvestment mm-hmm. it's the way things actually are operating mm-hmm. you know we aren't really marginalized it's just our role in the system itself mm-hmm. which to me is a different perspective and, and so I, I, that's why i'm put out, put out to you that that that, that the question of, of a reinvestment and i'm okay with the, the, the language it requires a fundamental reorienting of our political economy mm-hmm. i think a lot of times that notion of political economy in, in a deep sense we don't bring them to the surface a lot. Yeah. Um, just some, 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 some initial thoughts, man, on some good things you were saying. Great. No, that's that's really helpful. And remind me of the first point, the first, like, because there's so Yeah, much. just the idea that, that that the difference between short-term yes. and long-term accountability. Right. And, short-term and, and long-term. And then the, the, the middle point there, such oh, this, this, this is a test. <laughs> See, I want my brain can recall stuff, man. Come on, my old man, man. Don't, don't push your luck too much, man. Um, the idea of claiming your victories. Okay, great. Yes, yes, yes. So let me go. That's on. important to claim your victories. You don't, you don't need to respond to all the things, man. It's just kind of, we should, we should yeah. talk, man. Don't worry about it. I mean, I want to because there's so, um, th- there's a lot there. So in terms of the short term and the long term, I, I, I think cognitively the thing that we need to, the, the muscle that we need to flex is resisting binaries, right? I think that that's really helpful when we're developing strategy, right? So instead of uh, either or, like, are we focusing on the proximal victory or the long term? Are we, it's like, well, how do we ensure that the proximal victories build to our North Star vision? That's really the thing that we're trying to hold. How, how does how does the proximal build? And also that, that means there needs to be an understanding that not all proximal victories are created equal. And some of them forego the long-term, some of them create more of an opportunity for the long-term. And um, so I'm always trying to figure out what are the proximal victories that provide 
following that victory, a better opportunity to organize more people, to build more power, and to rearticulate the vision, which brings me to the second point around being able to secure and claim victories. I think it's actually both securing and claiming victories and being able to assess appropriately losses, that capacity is thrown off when we engage in cynicism, right? When when we engage in this left, left cynicism of like, you know, essentially whatever whatever we win we can't we can't claim the victory because white supremacy and capitalism still exist or something right and i think what's dangerous about that is that it actually weakens our ability to make assessments of when we're building power and when we're not to be able to say like i hear people on one side saying you know that loss wasn't real wasn't a real loss we actually won and we need to, we need to be able to say like no we lost here it's okay we thought we were going to make a left or we made a right. Let's assess. And then I also hear people saying, like, I can imagine there's some people so cynical that when Tashara Jones won in St. Louis, people are like, yeah, that's just cosmetic change, whatever. She's still under, like, she's still a, a, uh, a, um, a vehicle, um, you know, she's still basically leading a, a vehicle that is the product of the settler colonial project. So what's the point, right? And like, you you could say, you could say both. You could say like, this is actually a pretty bold people's victory. And we understand that one mayor's race um, is just one victory in a long struggle. So let's build on that, right? And let's allow that victory to provide momentum for us and to demonstrate that when we fight, we win. Right, so there's a way of holding both, and I think we need to learn how to do that and get into that, into that sort of posture. Even as we look at the the um, the policies that come out of the Biden administration and the rhetoric that comes out of the Biden administration, when Joe Biden says white supremacy is terrorism and trickle down economics has never worked, we need to claim those rhetorical victories as our own, right? That is not the that that language and that framework is not one that Joe Biden has been advancing for most of his political life. So when he so, so you, you missed the, you missed the campaign in the sixty we talked about white supremacy, right? He, he was fiercely anti racism in the sixty. By the way, you missed that one clearly. Okay, I, I missed it. I missed it. <laughs> I missed that. But if you if you could rewind the tape, I'm happy to to see that. So so the fact that he's saying those things. You could either say like, well, what does that really mean? And he runs empire and big deal that he says that. They're just words. Or you could say that's an indication that we have shifted the culture and the political climate so that it's necessary that he says those things. And I think that it's appropriate that we do that and we claim that. We don't overclaim. We don't suggest that because the president says that white supremacy is, 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 is terrorism, that therefore white supremacy is now on the run. Actually, in some ways, the opposite. The white supremacist backlash is at a high. But we have to be able to have the nuance to talk about the things that are working, how we're building, when we're winning, so that emotionally, we could feel a sense of momentum. Because who wants to be be part of a perpetually losing movement that has no end game and, that, and, then, and, and can't see a path towards victory? Um, and also strategically, so that we could assess the things that are working and and, and aren't working. You know, it seems to me that the part of the the, um, the process and avoiding the pitfalls you talk about, Maurice, is ensuring that we're rooted in the in the folk and the people. Mm-hmm. You know, people that got to get up and go to the store and get up and go to work and and find the kids and all those sort of things. Because when we get wrapped up in kind of our folk, the movement people, uh-huh. then all of a sudden these ba- these, these debates become kind of untethered sometimes from most folks' real worlds. Yeah. And then, and then the debates go all off, off off kilter, right? Sure. But but when we are kind of rooted in folks' lives and all of a sudden they say, yo, man, back in the day, that cop with my ass, he can't do it no more. I, yeah. I, I feel that. And he say, yeah, I get we still in some racial capital stuff, but yo, that cop's off my ass, right? That's and, right. And so I think that's one way to kind of minimize some of the, the, the things you're talking about happening by ensuring we're checking with folk, making sure we're always tethered to folk and themselves. Mm-hmm. At, at the same time, it seems to me that we have to do the delicate act 
of of doing the both, the, the both and thing. You know that that that, that this is a, a victory, and, and but it may also be limiting as well. And, and cultural battles have two sides to them, right? Mm-hmm. And so I remember, I was young politically, not quite young, not quite a baby, but in the late sixties, when we started talking about black power. Yeah. And all of a sudden, for some people, you know, the, for the first black power pro- conference was funded by corporations in Newark, 67. Mm. And all of a sudden, so you have these corporations saying black power, and all of a sudden, then the wing went to black capitalism. You have Nixon saying he was a black ca- he's for black power, black capitalism. And so it's important to, to know that just as our activity, our activism, has caused that shift in, in, in some ways of cultural expressions, if we don't see the good and bad to that, it can go way off and in, in, into a strange place as, as well. And both are important. Oh, you that's know? such a critical point. So both of those points. Number one, I'm an organizer, right? That's the thing that I'm trained in, right? That's the thing that I'm, I have any mastery doing. That's the only thing that that anybody should ever allow me to do. <laughs> I'm kind of painted myself into a corner. Like I don't have any... Um, marketable skills outside of organizing. So I'm kind of stuck doing this. And I could tell when I'm talking to people based on their rhetoric, whether or not they're organizing or not. Because when you're organizing, you just have to constantly be engaging with your folk, whoever your base is. Um, And if you're a left organizer, your base should be working class folks, right? Um, And that is the best BS meter for whatever rhetoric you might have or whatever ideological frameworks might be in your head. You know, like you could also hear, you could hear college in people, like somebody who just left a four-year university. You could hear those those politics because they're so doctrinaire and they're outside of practice. But when you practice those things, you realize, okay, this ideolog- this ideology is a map, but I live in in the world. And it would be as um, as wild to take a physical map and tell people that the, this the physical this physical map is actually a actual embodiment of a place. The map is just a representation of a place, right? And maps are destructive. Like you don't when you look at a map, you don't see every single detail of a state or a city. You get a representation of where things are. And that, to me, is the same thing that ideology is. And so you don't read from an ideological sort of doctrine when you're knocking on somebody's door, right? Um, If you're a leftist, then your ideology should train you with the understanding that your job is to organize, organize workers and organize working people in order to counterbalance the impact of organized capital. And then you need to organize those people. And be able to speak in the 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 um, the culture and the language, and have the understanding, and listen to those people, and uh, trust those people, and respect those people. Um, so I, I say that to say I, I completely affirm what you're saying, right? Like, if our folks have excitement or are happy about the 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 Chauvin um, verdict. And we just poo-poo it, then I don't think we're doing our job as organizers. I think there's ways that we could elevate and um, join in that in that in that happiness and provide a space to actually talk a little bit about the structures that we still face, even though this one police officer is off the streets. And that's our job as organizers to be able to listen and respect where our folks are moving and going and be in those places with them uh, versus being so abstract that we alienate ourselves from our base and we're not moving anything but a small number of self-identified progressives or leftists or or or, or what have you. Um, so to your other point, oh, and you had such a good um, insight. Um, it's, it's that at the end of my day, so now I'm like losing everything. It's the end of the day, end of the end of the week. Help me out, brother. That's and, a good excuse. That's a good excuse. Now. My, my excuse, I'm an old man. You're excuse <laughs> the day. We all got excuses now. This excuse is okay. I got to I got to I I need a like ginkgo biloba or, or something I don't know ginseng I I need I need to get my edge back. Um, well, like the the last point you were making outside of um this disconnect 
between folks who are maybe not engaging with folks and folks who might have that engagement. Um, how would you articulate that again, the other point? I think I'm saying that, that, that is my, my middle-of-the-day problems, right? The, the, the idea that one way to check our, um, you're called, our focus on, on ideology mm-hmm. is talking to real folk. Yeah, yeah, who yeah. can appreciate the changes. That's right. You know, because they've actually lived the life that, that, that some of us live mm-hmm. and some of us talk about, right? They live the life. And they, they, they understand that Rome wasn't built in the day. And, and they say that, and they see that one cop is off the street. Yeah. They've deeply appreciate that. You know, that's, that's right. what thing I was mentioning. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't. So um, organizing gets the goods and it keeps us honest and it keeps us focused on 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 the the challenge because yes of course there is a ability for us to be able to challenge folks to maybe see things that they would not normally see or to look at structures but if you're so um if you're operating in in such a a place devoid of people's lived experience that you can't have that conversation the second thing that you said about corporations and now I remember about corporations and corporations uh basically shifting black power to be black power and black capitalism. Yeah, I mean, I mean basically, look, capitalism is very adaptive and the most organized forces in any society will be the forces that are able to um leverage the opportunities in that society because they have the capacities to do that. And whenever there's a power vacuum, so nature doesn't like vacuums. Vacuums get filled. Whenever there's a power vacuum, that vacuum gets filled. So look at um, what most people call the Arab Spring. Look at Egypt. Uh, a coalition of forces that included a lot of folks, in- including young people, students, people on the left, toppled a dictator. And who who filled the void? A, a theocratic movement. And then who toppled that theocratic movement? The military because they had the, the capacity to do so. And under neoliberal capitalism, the, the you know, capital generally can move very nimbly. And capitalism is, is agnostic on anything but being able to make quarter-by-quarter profits. So if you could profit off of Black power or off of the language of Black power, you know, like, then there will be a market for it, and they'll take that market. And so, you know, I think about after Michael Brown was murdered, a few months after that, Taser International, which is a large multinational corporation uh, that is the main purveyor of body cameras, they came out with their with their product and they were able to lobby state legislatures and the federal government. All of a sudden, body cameras was the panacea, right? And now, you know, body cameras are are something that many... Folks in law enforcement, where uh, it hasn't changed the, the nature or the scale of Black death, it has meant there's a record of it. And, you know, not to be so cynical, but then, you know, um, the social media platforms, they they actually are able to make money off of Black death because those police shootings, those videos get shared Um Sometimes and watched in the millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions, and that's a our attention is a, is a is a um, can be monetized. So I mean I think it's 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 just to just to put a fine point um, on what you're saying. Capitalism and capital is nimble and is I think agnostic as it relates to all types of things. Capitalism will sell a Che Guevara T-shirt to you. It, you know, capitalism will will sell will sell back to you black power and explain why black power is is black capitalism. Capitalism will sell the movement for black lives back to you and explain how the movement for black lives is actually about police officers and young black kids playing basketball together, right? So we do need to be vigilant and we need to be precise so that we could assess what it actually is that we're talking about when we use this language, because the language could be easily co-opted, movements could be easily co-opted, and um, um, 
the fact that we've shifted the consciousness and the culture um, is an advantage for us to to move the needle politically, but it doesn't necessarily mean that might happen because the possibility for cooptation is always real, either governmental cooptation or the cooptation from from organized capital. Um, and um, that vigilance, I think, is necessary more more so than ever. I, I want to kind of take what you said and and, and kind of separate into two camps. Mm-hmm. A bit artificial, but that's how you all when I talk at least, right? <laughs> One is the, the the capacity of capital to market new things. Let's mm-hmm. say you all got body campers, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Or I remember right back in Houston um, when Target started selling kente cloth. Damn. Mm-hmm. Targets on Kente cloth, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's on the one hand, but also I want to raise the issue of how does our broadness in our terms affect our capacity as a movement to be sharper in, in our struggle? And, and so I was, I was reading an email from a friend of mine yesterday, and it's from a local NAACP labor committee. Mm-hmm. But their focus was Black construction contractors. And so this is a way of taking a loose term about, you know, helping black folks and black labor, and but the focus is on getting black contractors. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's us, that's not a matter of corporations or target. That's, that's us and how we say things and how we really organize people so that, wait a second, a labor committee deals with workers. That's right. Not contractors. Contractors. Or we can talk about these are the gains of having looked at the official, and these are the shortcomings that we have to be worried about as well. So the issue is how do you act, how do we both talk about and act on a, for our movement in ways that can reduce the the the, the, the inevitable sort of tug of war between capital in certain directions, and that's that's super complicated, man. It's super hard, you know. It's 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 the name. It's it's it is the work, but I do think that one way to mitigate it in like in a in a structural way throughout our movement is by putting more of an emphasis on political education, right? Because I, I've noticed that when you do that, then, um, and everybody's speaking the same language um, ideologically, it helps people uh, to be part of the same conversation so they can make assessments and course corrections. But when there isn't the same ideological or political language, it makes it very hard. If the analysis, if I'm operating from a total different analytical framework than you, but part of the same project, which happens all the time, then, and I say like, hey, I think this might be a little bit messed up that we're advantaging contractors and not workers. Um, that conversation could either be a short conversation or a very long, frustrating conversation that might even result in rupture if we're not speaking from the same using the same political language. We might even have differences. We might even have differences using the same political language, but it's like if I'm speaking Russian and you're speaking Spanish, it's going to be very hard for us to communicate. And and I do think that that is one thing that we should be investing in. It's just more political education, more training. Um, A lot of our focus is on tactics and tactical training. Um, You know, just how to do a one-on-one meeting or how to... Um, canvas or how to engage in electoral work. These are tactics. Uh, how to engage in a direct action. You know, a direct action is a tactic. Um, and I think sometimes we imbue certain politics and tactics. So direct actions, because they're confrontational, somehow, you know, they're looked at as being more radical or, you know, but it's just a tactic. There's nothing inherently radical about any tactic. Um you know, one of the most radical things you could do is knock on a door if it's nested in a radical strategy. I can't know if, if if what you're doing is radical if I don't understand your strategy. And so I think um, I think uh, investing in political education would go a long way at resolving, helping us to resolve these contradictions. The contradictions are going to be there, but how do we in our like in that local organizing space? How are we to resolve that com- contradiction if we can't even perceive or appreciate that the contradiction even exists? Um, so th- that's that's my my plug for political education 
it doesn't mean we're all going to be on the same um on the same uh well it doesn't mean that we won't disagree but it will mean that we'll have a shared language to work through our disagreements okay so, so maurice i'm now moving your title as national director of the working families party you're now minister of political education that's your job now okay <laughs> i, but, I accept. But being serious, man, don't accept that, man. That this is a non-paying job, so, you see, so they may not want to do it, okay? But, but seriously, Maurice, so lay out what it means to to have political education and, and some 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 thoughts, like what topics, sure, um, different audiences. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think that when people sometimes hear political, not everybody, but sometimes people think of like academic stuff, right? Which, it, which could be political education, but that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. Because I think if it's not accessible, then what's the point? And uh, I, I'm talking about popular education so that a person, because you know our society makes us feel like we're atomized human beings. And the far right and the corporations benefit from decontextualizing. They're all about de decontextualizing. Um, so you're just an individual. Don't worry about it. You're not part of society. If you remember Margaret Thatcher um, uh, uh, famously said that, that there's no such thing as society, right? Their political project benefits from us feeling like that. So to me, the work of, just to be very simple, the work of political education is the work of contextualizing. Contextualizing you in a community, contextualizing you throughout history contextualizing you through a, a gl global dynamics. You're, you're part of a world. And contextualizing you in class, you are part of a, a, a working class that has a history and there's a global working class struggle. Um, and providing definitions to, to, to help put to words things that you already feel. If you ever read a good novel, a good novelist puts to words emotions and ideas and feelings that you already feel, but you're like, oh yeah, totally, I get that, I've been there. It's not about teaching you about how to feel. Um, good novelists, good artists um, create a, um, a framework so that you could discuss and interrogate your feelings. Good politi political education does the same thing. It creates a framework for you to be able to discuss and interrogate your conditions. Right. Well, we, let, me, let me put a pause a second. Um, I have a question wanted before I lose track of it, right? Yeah. You mentioned class. It seems to me that the dominant way we speak of, of black politics and even the mass way we talk about like black liberation yeah. is devoid of a class content to it. Yeah. And so in your new job as Ministry of Political Education. <laughs> yeah. I like the how. Part of Let's keep going. How you how are you going to talk about in a good way, not simply read this book by Cedric Robinson on racial capitalism, but in in a good way? How are you going to talk to folk about this question of class within the black community? So I can't think of a more important conversation to have. I think uh, a a racial reductionist sort of language or perspective is really problematic and it leads to things like there's this picture of Kamala Harris walking across the Capitol and then somebody juxtaposed that with this famous Norman Rockwell picture of a young black girl heading to school with all of these racists and it said and on one side it said um something to the effect of like how it started how it's going right and to me that is the example of a race analysis devoid of, of, of class consciousness, right? It's just like so problematic. Or the idea that simply because Kamala Harris or Barack Obama are black that and they got good jobs, these individuals got good jobs, that that somehow, um, that somehow is an indicator of overall black uplift, right? There's things that are seriously wrong about that, that you could only ascertain if you have a class analysis. Otherwise, it's like, look, if if any if any black person gets a position, then all black people are somehow winning. Even if that black person gets a position 
to run a corporation that is, you know, harming other Black people. It's a win, right? So I do think this is really important. And I think it's actually very common sense if you go through the paces, right? Like, and there's things that are like, you know, there's things that are also complex about this because I think it's appropriate and totally real. And this is what I know. Like, look, don't talk bad about Obama to to most Black people. Like, you want to get into, like, I can't have a rational conversation about Barack Obama with my my parents. So what's also real is that there is an emotional affinity and an emotional sense of racial pride that people feel when other Black folks do things. You know, this is the first Black woman vice president, the first Black. And so we could hold that, right? We could hold that and not um, try to shame our people for feeling those feelings. And we could have a real conversation about the fact that um, just everyday Black folks, the conditions that we're feeling, um, our trials and tribulations, the challenges that we have, um, what is it? What is it a function of? It's a function of race. But we know that there are Black folks who have escaped that, and um, sometimes those Black folks are exacerbating those things. And so it's not simply a function of race. It's also a function of something else. It's a function of class. And for a lot of folks, um, their class experience is an inherited experience and one that they will ultimately pass on to their to their children. And that's a that's a like back to my original conversation, that's something that most people could could talk to from a, a standpoint of their experience. You don't need to read Cedric Robinson, although that's dope and you should. Um, you could just have real talk about what people are experiencing at their job site or how people are trying to figure out how to make ends meet in this economy um, and how that has everything to do with their Blackness, has everything to do with the geography that that they're in, which has everything to do with their Blackness and how that's all caught up in race. And, you know, Black people know where we came from, right? We know if you're a Black person in the Western Hemisphere and you're not a Black immigrant or the child of a Black immigrant, then your folks came from slavery. What was that about? They were buying and selling us and they were profiting from it. And our people's labor was stolen and our people's labor is still stolen and they're still profiting from our ideas, right? So, you know, we were the capital in capitalism. You know, if it wasn't for us, this country would not exist. This country would not be the the most uh, powerful empire and the wealthiest country in the history of countries. If it wasn't for us, most Black people get that. There's not a lot of Black people who would hear the past five minutes and be like, what is this dude talking about, right? So this is this is not simply about race. This is about race and class. And it started off about, about race and class. You can't disaggregate race and class. You can't you can't untwine them. If you do, you're you're not having a proper assessment of the actual conditions. And you don't need to talk about it. You can talk about it um, using using academic um, lingo, but you don't have to because we live it every single day. And as organizers, you could just sit in, humil- in humility and listen um, to, to somebody expressing and bearing witness to their experience. And it'll be a, in, in many ways, like a rich um, exposition of the, all of the contradictions of race, class, and gender in this country. If you create the space, it's actually, in many ways, it, it it could be such a re- revelation for for folks to just have space to to be able to be heard and to bear witness to say that your story matters that you are a regular regular black person on the block just trying to get by and put food on the table and protect your family and there's space here for you to bear witness that is a part of organizing because what happens is as we as organizers create that space people shift from being subjects to being agents of change they shift their consciousness as they they both hear themselves, right? When you hear yourself and you speak your story into, into being, it reminds you that you're real. And when you hear others uh, speak their story, you realize the connection. 
And as you speak, you give others permission to speak. And so that's the, the power of organizing. And as you listen and speak, you begin to draw connections and you realize, oh, this isn't just about me. Oh, that isn't just about me. Well, oh, okay, now we're talking about systems. Things that aren't just about me, that's about everybody. Oh, okay, the fact that our our boss is doing, look, we're finally talking and we realize that our boss is doing the same thing to us. Oh, it's not about, I thought it was about me. There's actually a system at place. I don't have to use that language, but I draw that conclusion. Oh, maybe if we got together, we could do something about it. Ah, organizing then becomes a, sensible conclusion. But that takes time and space, and it takes the effort to actually create the conditions where people can engage in those conversations. People in structured conversations where they're able to provide their testimony, working people, I believe, will arrive at certain conclusions. The, the, you know, the, the challenge is people won't start there because people are operating under the hegemony of the system. So every, all of the all the consumerist and sexist and racist and homophobic and transphobic, all those ideas that are just embedded in the DNA of our culture, we're swimming in it. And so we shouldn't be surprised when, when we engage folks and some of that is inherent in how they understand the world. And we need to create the space where we could engage them, low bar of entry, but high you know, high bar, sort of low bar of entry, but but um, a, a sort of high set of standards, a high standard of, of conduct. You could do both. Where we're engaging folks compassionately, we're meeting them where they're at, and we're also challenging ourselves and challenging them to imagine a different world. We, this is the, the 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 I don't know, almost magic and beauty of organizing when done seriously and rigorously. Um, you could create those shifts. Um, and I, I, I firmly believe that, um, that y- you don't need to do that political education um, in a way that is um, super terse and, um, and it's about like reading doctrine. You could do it through uh, a process of inquiry where people are drawing those connections. Because my thing is always that people live whole lives, we're whole people. You know, we are in kind of silos where, you know, from eight in the morning to four in the morning, from eight in the morning to 10, I'm black. And then from 10 to 12, I'm a man. <laughs> then I'm an old man from 12. And we don't, we don't roll that way, right? right? And I think that that by dealing with people's whole lives, those systems become apparent if you do it at scale. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking about a good example of that out here in the Bay, the system, a lot of talk about out here in the Bay in terms of the whole legalization of marijuana and all those kind of things, right? And for a lot of for a lot of um, activists, the leaning is over making sure black folks get a share of the dispensaries. Yeah, yeah. But that's a class content too, Maurice, because mm-hmm. you're running a business. And mm-hmm. one sister was saying, "Well, my folk I organize, they can't get jobs because the marijuana's in the system." Mm-hmm. And so this whole notion of kind of folk on the street, which issues they face around marijuana, has a class content to it. Mm. Is your aspiration to simply at one time have a, a marijuana dispensary? We want to get a job, man. Okay, mm-hmm. and if it's legal to smoke, why can't I get a job, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of time dealing with people and the realities, we see things aren't really intersectional; yeah. they're actually holistic, and that they're, they're important to, to think through. That's right. I have a question, man. Sure. God, God, time is flying, man. I have a question. Now, one thing I've always appreciated about about the Working Families Party, both you know pre and post Maurice, you might say, mm-hmm. is um, linking the fight for social change and the need to build power to govern. Yeah. You know? And, and so I wanted you to talk a bit about more how you see connecting the fight for change and the need to govern and build power to, to govern in the context of what you're doing with the party itself. That's a wonderful question. And yeah, that's my ministry. That's where I've chosen to plant my my flag in the intersection of sort of social movements and the ability to govern. And why I appreciate that is I think that it requires you to answer some questions. Um, it requires you to answer the question, do you or do you not want to have control of the government, right? And because um, like, what's the point of electing people and attempting to govern if you've rejected the idea that we should be 
running the government, if we should seize the um, the reins of government. Um, and then it requires you also to decide that victory is possible, that we should win, right? Um, because elections have a very, very particular end date and winners and losers, right? And um, I, there's something very honest about that that I appreciate. Um, and you could enumerate how much you lost or won. Um, and I think it's, in some ways, it's a little hack to get back to the thing we talked about before. It brings people together in an electoral and united front um, on a, a key intervention that, that make, they're making, an electoral intervention, for the purpose of building governing power so that in the best case scenario, if the movement sets a demand or surfaces a contradiction or poses a question, if we're able to have left government governance and and co-governance with the movement, then we could meet that demand. Uh, we could answer that question. We could help to resolve that contradiction through the capacities that are uniquely in, in, uniquely vested in government. But that's only if we control the government. If we're just on the outside of the government, then all we could do is petition the government. What would it look like if we're not just outside petitioning the government, but, but Stephen Pitts is mayor, and you know the Pedro's the DA, and Maurice Mitchell is is one of uh, the city council people in a in a left block. Um, well, those conditions would be different, right? We can't fall into the cynicism that suggests like, oh, it'll just be the same. No, it'll be different. It won't be a utopia, but it will be different and meaningfully different. Like, you know, the fact that Tashara closed the workhouse, trust me, that's a meaningful difference for all those people who now will never, ever, ever have to spend a day there once they close the workhouse. So to me, um, it's all about that two-step. We talked about uh, the Arab Arab Spring, right? This movement created an opening, toppled a dictator, then this theocracy came in and then the military. What if you built a united front of all the forces, labor unions, grassroots organizations, social movements that were committed to one another as it pertained to elections? When the movement shifts the Overton window, shifts the realms of what's what's possible, that political party now I'm talking about the Working Families Party could secure the victories and fill the power vacuum before capital does or before the white supremacists do because they might be more organized. That's why I'm, I'm convinced that working people need their own political party and that we need to contend for power and contend for governance. Um, people are using the language of co-governance. I don't think that the idea or, or concept of co-governance is that radical because I think, um, you know, we live in a country where our our government is partially or almost completely corporately captured. So that means that many politicians are in a co-governance relationship already, but the co-governance relationship is one with capital. What we're trying to do is to have our elected officials be in a co-governance relationship with the people by creating a people's political party that is committed to winning, not just pyrrhic victories, but concrete victories committed to winning so we have a people's mayor in large cities. We have people like Tashara, like Tashara Jones, like um, Chok- Chokwe Antar Lumumba. We have people's city council people, um, you know, um, um, like, you know, Candy uh, uh, Sadabaka in Denver. Um, you know, that we, we invest in those folks because the outcomes actually shift for us when we do that. Not because everything will be perp- uh, perfect, not because we don't anticipate all types of contradictions and challenges, but because it's worth doing. And um, I'm really proud of the work that we've done over the past 20 years. And definitely, um, I'm very proud of the work that we've done over the past uh, more than two years since I've been the national director. Yeah, I, when I hear you talk, I think about there's, I'll say three, but maybe more if we actually tease out some more, like interconnected ideas and, and, and a kind of power thrust. One of them we can call street power. Mm-hmm. We just raise hell and 
people respond. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of our first instinct in many ways. Mm-hmm. And more and more, we've gotten into kind of electoral power, yeah. where we, we bring the street action into the ballot box. Mm-hmm. But I think there's an important distinction between electoral power and governing power. Mm-hmm. And I'm not clear all the elements there, because that's not my, my, my deep understanding at all. But I think it's important to think through, what does it mean to run a city? Or, right. or run a county, you know, and it's not getting just the right body in that seat, but a lot of other kind of minutia that, that for a lot of us, then what the hell are we talking about at all? So I think that's an important thing yeah. to do. I, I know we got to wrap things up, unfortunately. Like this is, could have been a longer conversation, man, but I have a, a, a quick question. How do you define black freedom? I have a child. He'll be five. I define black freedom as... Um, a reality or a space where his blackness not only is not an impediment psychologically, psychically, um, physically, uh, due to whatever um, societal or cultural barriers might exist, or are is not a not only is not an impediment to um, his aspirations on all those fronts. His blackness is additive to his imagination and to the boundary, to his ability to expound his his horizons and, and his boundaries as it relates to how he wants to show up in the world. A world like that, to me, that's black freedom. It's both the freedom from getting killed by the police uh, the freedom from all of the downside of of white supremacy and racism, and it's also the freedom too, the freedom to be able to, in the short period of time that you have, the what eight decades, nine decades, whatever for for most of us, the freedom to be able to realize your highest aspiration, whatever that might be, whatever your soul is stirring you and calling you to to aspire to, and um, and as well as the, the freedom from um, experiencing um, the the depths and the 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 intense downsides of um, of a political or economic system um, that we cur- currently doesn't work for us. So when I when I see black freedom, I think our basic needs are met and our highest aspirations are before us, and that's what I desire for my child. That's cool. Saying big aspiration and high aspiration. That's a good way to look at it, man. That's cool. Man, what are you reading? Oh, okay. I'm <laughs> I'm reading this one book right now. Um, I'm going to get the name wrong. What is the name? Uh, let me see. I'll tell you what this book's name is. I just started reading it. I'm super interested in it. And like, you know, there's this interesting. Um, conversation happening um, as it relates to blackness. And there's um, there's a lot of folks who are defining and redefining blackness. Um, so Winston James, holding aloft the banner of Ethiopia. Ah, yeah, and, it's and cool, it, man. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I'm looking forward to, to reading that book. Um, that's, just that's, that's really here. cool, man. But yeah, it, cool, it talks man. about this pretty interesting relationship that folks who are born in the West Indies have had specifically in the black freedom movement in the United States of America. It's a very rich story there. So that's what I'm reading right now. So we need your, we need your book, book report on that, man. <laughs> yeah. Just call me back in a few months. It's, it's hard for me to get through anything because my schedule is so insane, but yeah. I understand that. And what, what, how about music, man? A music driving you right now? Sure. What am I listening to right now? Uh, Kamasi Washington, um, listening to him. Um, listening to th- last, I was listening to Thundercat. Um, okay. Yeah. And, um, what was the last thing I was listening to that was like really moving me? Um, I, I always go, I, one thing I, I do is I go back to miles. Um, like there's just something about maybe when I started listening to him, when I was, um, like growing up, it, it, just kind of locks me into a certain mind mind space. Oh, and I've been listening to re-listening to Funkadelic. Uh, one of my that Tom Funkadelic is my favorite band. 
Yeah. Okay. Funkadel is my favorite band, and Prince is my favorite performer. I know you didn't ask for all of that, but... It's all good, man. Um, it's good to hear. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. man. It's important. This has been great, Maurice. This is what it has been, man. Thank, thanks for doing this, okay? Thank and you. now I'll shut it down. All right. I wish I had more time with Maurice. The issue of bringing a class lens to black politics, a lens rooted in the experience of black folks, and not rooted in books and articles aimed at activists and intellectuals, is still very important to really achieving black freedom. And Maurice's vision of black freedom, freedom from and freedom to, was so good. I hope we can talk to Maurice again in the, in the near future. Thanks for joining me this week on Black Work Talk. I hope this podcast can grow to become part of the network of our movement for change. We need your help as we build the Black Work Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcast and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. And beyond the financial support, I would love to hear from you. What do you think about the show? Any suggestions for future guests or future topics to explore? Please let me know. Reach out to me at steven at blackworktalk.com and I promise to get back to you. Until the next episode, stay safe and be well.